The parables of Jesus are among the most popular elements of the Bible. But what are the deeper stories behind them, and how do they relate to the modern day? Welcome to the Parables podcast series, produced by the Archdiocese of Brisbane. In this seven-part series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge takes us deeper into these stories. Thank you for joining us for the Parables Podcasts. So in this podcast, we turn to the fifth of our parables as we continue to explore the wonderful world, the mysterious world in many ways of the parables of Jesus, remembering that the parables of Jesus are very particular because they are little narrative metaphors, little stories with metaphoric force that seek to subvert conventional understandings and experiences of the kingdom of God, but only in order to generate the possibility of new understandings and new experiences of the kingdom of God. So I have said before that all of these parables in their different ways begin in an ordinary world, and then at some point they turn extraordinary, and that is the kingdom moment, as I have described it, and then they are open-ended. So that, that really gets at the distinctive character of these parables of Jesus, remembering that, that other rabbinic teachers used parables. They were a common teaching form in Judaism, but Jesus uses them in a very particular way, and they are tied to his, his revolutionary understanding of the kingdom of God and the human response that the coming of God's kingdom requires. Now, one of the things I've said for years in teaching scripture to eager students is that text without context is pretext. So let's just spend a moment now setting the context of this parable that we turn to, which is sometimes called the parable of the talents. It is one of these narrative metaphors uh, that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God and the human response that it calls for. This particular parable occurs in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. So Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30 is where we focus in this podcast. Now, the eschatological discourse of Matthew is chapter 24 and 25. Matthew's gospel really takes the storyline of Mark's gospel and makes five great incisions into the storyline of Mark. And into those incisions, Matthew inserts five great discourses, one of which is this uh, chapters 24 and 25, which is called the eschatological discourse as we move towards the end of Matthew's gospel. Eschatological refers to the end time, the last things, and and what Jesus is describing in these two chapters and in the parables that they contain is the the end time, which will also be the, the coming of God's kingdom, the end of the old age and the coming of the new age, the eschaton, to use the Greek word that gives us the English word eschatological. Eschaton just means the last thing. So in this speech, 24 and 25, Jesus is focusing upon the breakup of the world as we know it, which has to happen if the kingdom of God is to be born. Because Matthew, as we shall see, has Jesus used the metaphor of birth. 
At the beginning of chapter 24, we're told that Jesus leaves the temple, never again to enter the sacred place. Now, this leaving of the temple is more than just a physical translocation. It's not just a description of what happened physically. It seems to me to look back to what we find in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, where the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of the glory of God, the kabod or the doxa, leaving the temple and then travelling east, the glory of God and resting on the Mount of Olives. Because you see, that's exactly the way Matthew describes it. He says, Jesus left the temple and his disciples then come to him as he sits on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus moves out of the temple and would go down into the Kidron Valley and then up onto the Mount of Olives as he often did because he went up the Mount of Olives in order to stay with Martha, Mary and Lazarus. They were his friends with whom he stayed every time he went to Jerusalem. And to get to their place in Bethany, he had to go down from Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and around the ridge, and there was Bethany. So here is, as it were, the glory of God in flesh, leaving the temple for the last time, prophesying its destruction. He says, not one stone will be left on another. So this is the, one of the, the great symbols of, of the end, of the breakup of the world as we know it, the destruction of the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was regarded as being the epicentre of the divine presence where the glory of God dwelt. So the glory in Jesus leaves the temple this time as Ezekiel's vision had it and moves to the Mount of Olives and there Jesus sits and speaks to his disciples. Now... What he speaks of is precisely a vision of breakup, and it's a, a fearful vision. He says, You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, uh, and nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. So, so it is, it's, it's a, a dramatic and very dark vision of the breakup of the world as we know it. But then he says something which is profoundly mysterious and also important. He says, all this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. So birth always involves a breakup of the world as we know it, certainly a breakup of the world of the womb that the child has inhabited. That world breaks up in order that birth may happen. What Jesus describes looks like the death pangs, but he calls them birth pangs because this is the birth of the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom described as a birth. Birth has pangs, painful. But the question is, this experience of breakup, is it an experience of birth or death? Death too has its pangs. So these pangs, are they the pangs of birth or death? And the answer that Jesus gives is that these are the pangs of birth. So it's fundamentally important to be able to know the difference between birth and death. The two can look and feel very similar. But if we confuse the two, we are caught in an ultimate confusion. So it is the birth 
of the kingdom of which Jesus speaks in verse 8. In verse 13, in the midst of all this drama, this experience of breakup, he gives us again a crucial line that will lead us into the parables that follow. Because he says there, in the midst of all this drama of breakup, whoever endures to the end will be saved. Sometimes the translation reads, your endurance will save you. So he speaks of endurance as that which will produce salvation, as that which will enable us to be born or the kingdom to be born within us. So the question that the discourse goes on to address is what does endurance actually entail? What does it mean? Does it mean just hanging on by the skin of your teeth, showing true grit, or does it entail something more and something more creative? The answer to that question, what exactly does endurance entail, Jesus gives in the five parables that follow. Now, all of them speak of the need for vigilance and readiness. In other words, you have to be watchful and you have to be ready because, again, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the kingdom of God will not come in the way or at the time you expect. And if we are imprisoned by our own expectations, we will not be watchful, we will not be ready for the coming of the kingdom. So a quality of watchfulness, a quality of readiness that deals with the unpredictability of the coming of the kingdom. But at the same time, what the parables make clear in this eschatological discourse is that vigilance and readiness aren't just something passive. You don't just sit back and wait for the kingdom of God to fall in your lap. Sit back and do nothing. That's not the kind of vigilance and kind of readiness that is implied by the endurance of which Jesus speaks. Now, against that background, we turn to the parable itself in chapter 25. It begins in the ordinary world, as all of these parables do. They do not take you into some phantasmagoric world that we do not recognise as our own human milieu. So a man who's going on a journey calls his servants and entrusts them with his property, we're told. Now, he entrusts them with money. Uh, nothing very phantasmagoric about that. But what is unusual is the amount of money that he entrusts them with. We're told that he's dealing in talents. Now, one talent was more than 15 times a labourer's annual wage. Now, labourers weren't paid much, but nonetheless, a talent was 15 times what a labourer would earn in a year. So that when he gives to the first servant, or slave is another translation, just by the way, slaves in this world were not necessarily what we might think of as slaves because it was more people who had no access to the land, which was the source of wealth. All they had to sell, as it were, was their labour. They were not landowners in a world where land was the source of wealth. So all they could... They were bonded labourers. 
So to the first he gives the astonishing amount of five talents. To the second, again, the very large amount of two talents. I mean, obviously he trusts them. And then to the third one, he gives the one talent. Still a lot of money. So these are servants whom he clearly trusts with his wealth, who would have been part of his household, not just part of his workforce. Again, the relationship between master and slave had a a touch of the family bond about it. Uh, But he's interested, it would seem, to test them. He knows them, he knows their ability, or he thinks he does, and he wants to test both his assessment of them and their capacity to exercise responsibility in his absence Because his absence, as it turns out, we learn later in the parable, in fact is a long absence. He's not just away for a couple of days, he's away for a long time. And presumably he knew that when he decided on this course of action. So here they are, they're trusted with large sums of of money for a long time to exercise responsibility so that the master can test his assessment of them and know whether or not they are capable of the greater responsibility that he seems to have in mind for for these trusted servants with their different levels of ability. The question of the long absence is actually interesting because obviously one of the questions that the early church had to deal with was the delay of the parousia or the second coming. Matthew's gospel is probably written in the early 80s, so well after the destruction of Jerusalem, which seemed to be the the apocalyptic moment in 70 AD. And clearly, Christians were asking the question, why hasn't the Lord returned? And given the delay of the parousia, how should we respond? Paul clearly addresses this um, experience in his letters where there were some people who thought, well, given that the Lord is, is coming back very soon... Uh, why shouldn't we just sort of sit around and wait? A kind of passivity if it was going to happen tomorrow or next week. It didn't happen tomorrow. It didn't happen next week. So Matthew's community is clearly still expecting the second coming of, of the Lord, as the Lord himself had predicted, but it hadn't happened. And what are we to do about the delay? And clearly this is one of the reasons why Jesus in these parables is very keen to stress that it's not a matter of passivity, this endurance, this watchfulness, this readiness. It does involve the kind of action, active response that you see in these, well, two of these three servants. One of the problems with the third servant is precisely that there's a kind of passivity just sitting back and waiting in a sense, doing nothing. Now, the the first two, when, when the master eventually returns and wants to settle his accounts or see how these uh, servants have gone with this uh, burden of responsibility, how well they have responded, the uh, the first two have done extraordinarily well. They have doubled what they received from the master, showing themselves to be trustworthy. And the master says that. Well done, good and faithful servant, he says to both of them. 
you've been faithful over a little, and in other words, you've passed the test, shown yourself to be trustworthy and capable of greater responsibility, uh, now, therefore, you can, uh, I'll set you over much, he says, enter into the joy of your master. And joy is a critical word, always in the New Testament, and we shall return to that a little later. So these first two servants pass the test and share the authority and joy of the master. So they return to the master not only the money that he had given them, but something of their own too, the fruit of their own, faithfulness and responsibility, they give him his and theirs and therefore share the authority and joy of the master. So it's a, it's a vision of, of, of genuine collaboration which leads to a greater share of authority from the master to the two servants and a share in the master's joy. Now, the third servant is the, the focus of the parable. Now, what is the problem with the third servant? Now, he had less ability, he would, it would seem, but that's not the problem. Why was it that he decided to bury the one talent? And his own words give us the answer. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not winnow. So a, a very negative sense of the master. I knew you to be like that. And says this third servant, I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. He dug a hole in the ground and buried the talent. But in digging the hole in the ground, as it turns out, he digs his own grave, as it were. He's afraid that the master will punish him if he makes a mistake. He's kind of paralysed and can't take a risk. He is afraid of punishment, and yet what is truly tragic about the third servant is that he ends up copying the very punishment that he seeks to avert. And this is the logic of fear. Fear ends up provoking the very punishment that it seeks to avert, and that's exactly what happens to, to the third servant. But he also, and this is critical in understanding the human response to the kingdom of God, he gets the relationship between himself and the master wrong. He says, take what is yours. In other words... There's nothing of mine. There's nothing, nothing of me in what I re restore to you. There's no sense of collaboration as there was with the earlier two servants. Instead, what we find in this case is a sense of opposition and antagonism between the third servant and the master. Fear that provokes that sense that the master is my opponent, the master is my enemy. This is very reminiscent of what we find in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, what you find is that Adam and Eve hide from God in the garden. 
because of fear, again. The absurdity of hiding from God that comes once the understanding of the relationship between the human being and God is corrupted, as it is in Genesis 3 after the fall and as it is in this parable. The master who wants to share his authority and his joy with his household, his servants, is the one from whom this servant hides and enters a world that is a dark world shaped by fear. If you look at the scripture, probably the most common phrase in the whole Bible is, is the phrase, do not be afraid. Throughout the New Testament, it's again and again found in, in the Greek, me phobou. So here again, we're touching on a theme that is absolutely central to the whole of scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that was clearly something that Matthew and his community had to deal with. But it's something that we all have to deal with. Now, if, we get, if we get our sense of who God is and of our relationship with God wrong, if we get the master wrong, then everything else goes wrong. Again, the very first pages of the Bible make that clear. Once you get the relationship with God wrong, all other relationships go wrong. And that's what we see in this parable. The great cry of the Bible, do not fear, rings out from the heart of this parable. And one thinks of what is said in the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 18, where the letter says, perfect love drives out all fear. So in a sense, that the choice that this parable puts before us is the choice between love and fear as responses to the coming of the kingdom of God. Love and trust, on the one hand, lead to a share in the master's authority and a share in the master's joy. Now, joy in the New Testament is tied to Easter. It's not just fun. It's not even just happiness. It's a different depth of human experience that is tied to the experience of, of, of Easter, in other words, the experience of a life that's bigger than death. The only one who, who, who has joy and who can give it as gift is precisely the master, the risen Christ. He alone has joy. He owns it all, as it were. And only he then can share it with us. We can find no joy of our own unless it comes to us as gift from him. So insofar as he draws us into his own life, and his own authority, this master risen from the dead, we find ourselves drawn into his invincibility. You see, once Jesus rises from the dead, they can't do anything to him. The lamb once slain now lives forever. They tried everything and it didn't work. So he's invincible. And those who are drawn into him, who are in Christ, to use Paul's term, share that kind of invincibility. And once you know they can't do anything to you, they might try all kinds of stuff, but if they can't do anything to you, then the door is open to that experience of joy. And what, what the churches of the East have long called divinization, called into the authority and joy of God, whose kingdom comes, we become like God. We say this in the third Eucharistic prayer when we pray for the dead. We shall be like you. This is not a theme that's common in the Western church, but it is in the East. 
that this sharing in the authority and joy of the master is a kind of divinization. So the kingdom moment when this parable turns strange is when the one talent is taken and given to the first servant. The one who has returned ten to the master receives one for himself as pure gift. He's done nothing really to deserve it. He didn't expect it. So in addition to sharing the master's authority and joy, he, uh, he receives a very substantial financial reward. And here again you see the extravagance of God and the extravagance of the coming of God's kingdom in our midst. The judgment on the uh, third servant does seem harsh when seen by standards other than the standards of the kingdom. But in a sense, when he's cast out into the outer darkness, as we're told, it's he who has consigned himself to the darkness by digging his own hole, his own grave in the ground. So in that sense, the master simply acknowledges or recognises what the third servant has done to himself. Exclusion from the joy, which is the darkness, and exclusion from the joy because of the fear and all that the fear has done in his life and to corrupt his sense of his relationship with the master. Judgment is absolutely a theme in all these parables, certainly in this eschatological discourse of 24 and 25 in Matthew's Gospel, that there's no way around it, that, that part of the coming of the kingdom will involve judgment, but not by, by a master who is our opponent, our enemy or our antagonist, who is wanting to throw us out in the darkness. This is a master who wants to share his authority and his joy with us but there will be judgment. And in the end, the judgment will be a recognition of the consequences of our own decisions and actions. So all the parables are open-ended, so too this, because it looks to our response. Do we choose fear as the way forward when in fact it's the way back? Or do we choose the way forward of love and trust which leads us into that sharing of the divine authority and the divine joy? How do we see God? Do I see myself as working with God, as part of God's household, sharing God's authority, sharing God's joy? Um, what do we hide? What do we bury in the ground because of fear? How does fear work in my life? And do, is there in my life that quality of endurance that includes not only vigilance and readiness, but that act of working with God, sharing in the life of God, which enables the kingdom to come and ourselves as collaborators in that process, and to know that because of that endurance and all that it entails, we ourselves are saved, we are born into the new world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parables podcast series. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow the Archdiocese of Brisbane on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, or subscribe for more podcasts on iTunes or Spotify.